Episode 60. Deep, cold, frigid wind chills, driving snow, or was that sunshine and 50 degrees? Hmm, Patuxa Village. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxa General. I am your host, Jess. This is a very special 60th episode, and so we're talking about a very special recipe. Rhode Island Pizza Strips, or Party Pizza for my townie pals. I've made these to rave reviews and sales for years. They never fail, but wait, there's more. We also have two kinds of martini, one a drink and one an appetizer, but by one name, the Salmon Martini. I know, right? I can't wait, but wait! We also have two local pirate stories with treasure, ghouls, and consequences. But first, we must thank our Patreon subscribers. These saucy festive folks are the garlic, hot pepper flakes, tomato magic, olive oil, salt, pepper, sugar, romano, and parmesan cheese that tops the soft, sweet, salty, crunchy, and eye-rolling crust that makes up the pizza strips that are the Patuxent General, without whom we would clearly be panned. So thank you. If you would also like to share your pizza love, look for our page on Patreon or simply follow the link in the show notes. So thank you. Let's chat about party pizza and cheese. Cheddar, mozz, feta, parm. All these cheeses are warm. Romano, ricotta, cave aged and blue. From fresh to old, all will do. All cheeses, I love you. From just strained to Egyptian aged, from yeasted to fondue. I love cheese. Pizza strips. This is how you can tell how I really feel about you folks. This is by far the most asked for recipe. Here in Rhode Island, there are several staples that are enduring. Every party that is potluck or birthday or housewarming or funeral reception have pizza strips, or as we call them, party pizza. Back in the day, my sister and I made pizza at Little Falls. Lovely thinnish crust slices. I decided to throw my hat in the ring with my own pizza strips. Having tried strips every day and watched my friends, family, and neighbors top theirs before eating, I was interested in adding all the toppings that Rhode Islanders put on into the sauce. That way, they could be all things to all people. Let me tell you, boy did that work. People bought them like hotcakes. These strips are like candy. I've had people buy them at the farmer's market and come back 10 minutes later to buy more. This is my red sauce version. I also have a vegan version that I call green strips. Perhaps we'll do that next week. But for right now, let's start with the dough. For this, you will need... 1 8 cup fresh cake yeast, 1 half cup sugar, 1 and a 1 half teaspoon salt, 3 quarters of a cup of olive oil, 6 and a half cups of warm water, and 16 cups of King Arthur Special or any spring wheat flour that you can get. Let's be clear, this is a lot of dough. Remember, this is for a party. Feel free to cut it in half or quarters for four people. Also, this dough can be frozen when fresh before it rises so that it can rise in your pan before you use it. We bake these in full sheet pans, but you could cut the dough in half and use half sheets, which will fit in most home ovens. Step one, whisk together the yeast, sugar, salt, olive oil, and warm water. Let's sit for two minutes to make sure the yeast is alive. It should bubble and foam a little bit. You will need to do this by hand unless you have a big mixer. 
Make a well in the flour in a huge bowl. Then pour in all of the wet mix, using a wooden spoon and then your hands to knead the dough until smooth. It will be a little sticky. Let it set for 15 minutes, then split into two balls for full sheets or four balls for half sheets. Smush the balls down a bit and let sit for half an hour on the sheets that have been greased with olive oil first. At this point, cover with sauce and let sit for 15 more minutes. The sauce you will need for two full sheets of pizza strips is a bulk strip sauce. Extra can be saved for about four days, but it must be cooked for further storage. I use a number 10 can of tomato magic by the Stanislaus family in New Jersey. Literally all other tomato puree tastes different. All of these mind-blowing meatball sandwiches that you have ever had have tomato magic on it. Guaranteed. So choose wisely. You will need one cup of sugar, three teaspoons local sea salt, one teaspoon black ground pepper, one tablespoon red pepper flake, one cup ground Romano cheese, eight large garlic cloves minced, one cup olive oil of your choice. I choose California olive oils. They have the best restriction on olive oil in the world, but use your favorite oil. Let's not have stress over pizza strips. Three and a quarter ounce Italian seasoning, also known as dried basil, oregano, rosemary, thyme, and granulated garlic. What I used to do was combine all the red sauce ingredients in a large container, raw, and cook them on the pizza themselves. This is highly contested among pizza makers. Some cook their sauce, some keep it raw. I wanted to make something for everyone, so I made my red sauce raw and my vegan green sauce cooked. I love cheese. I'm just going to say it right out there. The Romano cheese and the red pepper flakes and sugar make the difference here. After your pizzas have risen by a third, they go into a preheated 400 degree oven until they are dry around the edge and barely wet in the middle. All around the edge, it browns and dry speckles of sauce crack. If you lift up the edge, it is solid and golden brown on the bottom. It's done. The next part is very important. Take it out of the oven and while it's still hot, drizzle olive oil over the top. The pizza will suck it right up. The cutting is done one of two ways. Six inches by three inch strips or three by three inch squares for party pizza. Rhode Island is really one of the few places you can try this crowd pleaser. But now you can try it at home and enjoy. Next week, we'll talk about green pizza and what to do with your strip leftovers if you actually had any. The salmon martini. That's right, you heard me correctly, a salmon martini. After all, this is the ocean state in the last gasp of winter. It deserves a potent drink. As I was looking around at various recipes, I found one that's more of an hors d'oeuvre like ceviche and one that is a true martini. But first, our appetizer. For this, you will need one martini glass per serving, two ounces of garlic mashed potatoes per serving, two ounces of smoked salmon per serving, and a sprinkle of sautéed sunflower seeds and a garnish with mint and lavender. Spoon the garlic mashed potatoes into the glass then stick the smoked salmon in, standing up. Sprinkle with sautéed sunflower seeds and garnish your way. They have mint here, but I think dill would work better. Either way, enjoy with the other kind of salmon martini. And thank you, G&D Seafoods, for the recipe. The Salmon Martini. This recipe is from foodandwine.com. They have a great idea for this drink, and it is as follows. 
Smoked salmon-infused gin and a caperberry garnish channel all the bagel and lox vibes into a balanced brunch-perfect cocktail in this play on a dirty martini. Served at Bar Murano in Los Angeles, a Spanish-inspired wine and cocktail bar, the signature martini is a nod toward the rest of the restaurant's menu, which is full of Spanish conservas and preserved fish. While this takes around three weeks to fully infuse the flavor of cold smoked salmon into this dry gin, the result is a luscious, unique, and delicious spirit that can be used in a variety of cocktails. Don't worry, this martini is not fishy at all. Rather, it has a subtle savoriness from the smoked salmon that comes through with just a hint of salmon flavor. Using cold smoked salmon instead of hot smoked is key to imparting the lush, fatty richness that makes smoked salmon so enticing without overwhelming the drink. The use of Blanco vermouth in lieu of the more traditional dry vermouth adds a bit of sweetness which helps balance the salty salmon-infused gin with a large briny caperberry. If you don't use all the salmon-infused gin in a big batch of salmon martinis, try it as a substitute for London Dry in a playful take on the classic gin and tonic. Or use it in a Bloody Mary in lieu of vodka. For the salmon-infused gin, you will need two cups of gin such as Tangeray number 10, and also a half a cup or four ounces of cold smoked salmon. For the martini itself, you will need three tablespoons of salmon-infused gin, or one and a half ounces, two tablespoons or one ounce of Blanco vermouth, one tablespoon or one half ounce of gin, such as Tangeray number 10, and a pickled caperberry for garnish. To make the salmon-infused gin, combine the gin and salmon in an airtight container and let stand at room temperature for one week. Transfer to the refrigerator and chill for two weeks. Pour the mixture through cheesecloth or oil filter paper to remove excess fat and clarify. Discard the salmon. Infused gin can be stored in the freezer for up to one month. Now to make the martini. Combine the salmon-infused gin, vermouth, and gin in a mixing glass. Then ice and stir until well chilled. Strain the mixture into a chilled Nick and Nora glass and garnish with a caperberry. Oh yeah, I can't wait to try it. And I can't wait for you to tell me what you think of the salmon martini. Enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. Captain Kidd's Treasure and the Legend of the Gloucester Ghoul, a story of pirate curses. To best understand the story of the Gloucester Ghoul folklore, we must delve into the background of the notorious pirate Captain Kidd, and also his apostle incarnate, Albert Hicks. According to the Cranston Herald, Captain William Kidd was a friend and associate of Rhode Island's own Thomas Paine. Kidd and his ship 
Adventure Galley were commissioned as privateers to stamp out piracy and dilute from the French during King William's War in 1689. In 1695, Kidd was given the title of Admiral and sailed for Spain in the Indian Ocean. After this, it is believed that after nine months without bounty, Kidd, in 1697, joined with the local pirates, made plunder on Arab ships under French protection. Kidd would use any despicable means to lure the ships to their doom, including flying the French flag to lure the Arab vessel. His privateer commission only allowed the plunder of enemy ships. This illegal act got him charged with piracy. Kidd, for his part, looted the vessel and made it his flagship. Kidd began running with pirates of all sorts and even visited our own state of Rhode Island with the infamous pirate James Gillum in tow. In 1698, Kidd left the West Indies and headed for New England in the hopes of clearing his name. It is believed that it was at this time that Kidd brought much of his wealth to Rhode Island and buried it. Kidd's ship, the sloop St. Antonio, made its way into Rhode Island Harbor, now known as Narragansett Bay, and Governor Samuel Cranston's response was to attempt board with 30 armed men and his tax collectors. When they approached, Kidd opened fire on them and withdrew to Jamestown, where he arranged to meet with his friend Thomas Paine. Many believe that much of Kidd's treasure was disseminated by Paine in effort to secure Kidd's pardon. Kidd claimed that he was forced into piracy by his crew and was able to secure a pardon from English authorities. Kidd sailed to Boston. However, the Massachusetts governor, Lord Richard Belmont, had Kidd arrested on July 7, 1699, and by February of 1700, Kidd was found guilty of piracy and hanged twice. The first rope snapped on May 23, 1701. And that is how they say the treasure got here to little Rhodey. And that rumor fueled the fires of another infamous pirate, one Albert Hicks, born of Foster, Rhode Island, the last person to be executed for piracy in these United States. Hicks had worked on a farm in Foster until he was 15, and then he left for Norwich, Connecticut, where he began his life of plunder and villainy. He was abused in prison and escaped repeatedly, swearing revenge upon the whole human race. For the next 20 years, Hicks would set sail for South America, Mexico, for the Caribbean, engaging in ship mutinies and highway robbery. Eventually, he would wind up married in New York and in need of money and he would go on to piracy again. Hicks was hired on as a deckhand on the sloop A.E. Johnson, which on Thursday, March 16th, sailed from the foot of Spring Street, New York, for Deep Creek, Virginia, for a cargo of oysters. It was nighttime as the boat neared the narrows of Brooklyn and Staten Island. Captain Burr and Mr. Oliver had retired to their quarters, and Mr. Smith had night duty, and Hicks joined him on the deck, politely taking a turn at the wheel. Hicks saw something and pointed it out to Smith, asking what it was. Smith didn't see anything, but Hicks said, look again. Smith turned his back, and Hicks grabbed a sea axe and struck a blow to the back of Smith's head. Hearing the uproar, Oliver Watts stuck his head out through the cabin hatchway. Hicks struck again, decapitating Watts. Hicks recalled that the body slowly sagged downward, and that the head rolled onto the blood-stained deck. Hicks carried the axe into Captain Burr's cabin, who was by now awake. Burr, a staunch fighter, almost strangled Hicks to death in the fight. Eventually, Hicks managed to slice the captain with the axe, 
slicing off half of his face, including an eyeball and a nose, which were left hanging on the axe blade. Hicks then looted the captain's personal items. When Hicks returned to the deck, he saw movement and was astonished to see that Mr. Smith was on his feet and moving towards him. He believed it might be a ghost. Hicks forced the injured man overboard, but Smith grabbed the railing and held on tightly. Hicks swung the axe and lobbed off Smith's fingers, which fell onto the deck. The rest of Smith slipped into the water. Hicks then threw the bodies and the axe overboard. He escaped in the yawl, leaving the E.A. Johnson to run unattended into another vessel. Hicks fled to Providence, Rhode Island, where he was arrested, sent back to New York, tried and executed on Friday, July 13, 1860, on what is now Liberty Island. Now, about that Gloucester ghoul legend, while living in Foster, Hicks was fascinated by stories of pirates, robbers, and highwaymen. He was often riveted by tales his friends shared with him. One claimed that pots of silver and gold had been buried in their neighborhood by Captain Kidd. Hicks often found himself dreaming of finding that stash that was secreted somewhere nearby. In the summer of 1839, Hicks had grown certain that Kidd's treasure was lying somewhere on Page Farm in Gloucester, Rhode Island. He had heard that some Spanish doubloons had previously been found on the farm. Hicks and his young crew went after it. They took their picks and their shovels and began digging up the lot. Hicks claims that they were interrupted by some great beast that charged them from out of the darkest part of the woods. Hicks described the beast as a large animal with staring eyes as big as pewter bowls. The eyes looked like balls of fire. When it breathed as it went by, flames came out of its mouth and nostrils, scorching the brush in its path. It was as big as a cow with dark wings on each side like a bat's. It had spiral horns like a ram's, as big around as a stovepipe. Its feet were formed like a duck's and measured a foot and a half across. The body was covered with scales as big as clamshells, which made a rattling noise as the beast moved along. The scales flopped up and down. The thing had lights on its sides like those shining through a tin lantern. Before I saw it, I felt its presence, and I smelled something that was like burnt wool as it went by. I had a feeling of suffocation when it came near me. The monster seemed to come from nowhere and to go away in the same manner. In 1896, the publication The Evening Hour documented another sighting of the Gloucester ghoul by witness Neil Hopkins, who on his way home from Putnam, Connecticut, was accosted by it. The creature supposedly struck when Hopkins was at the darkest point of the trail. He described it as a big as an elephant. It seemed to be all afire. It had hot breath, Neil explained. There was a metallic sound like the clanking of steel against steel. The beast didn't seem to be strong in the wind, for it chased me for only a short distance, and then it plunged off into the woods. I could hear the dead branches and twigs crackling under the heavy tramp. Hopkins and many others believe that the beast was the same one which pursued Hicks in an attempt to guard the lost doubloons of Captain Kidd from final plunder. Now, according to the Guardian's report on May 2015, the wreck of the Adventure Galley was discovered off the coast of Madagascar by a joint U.S.-U.K. expedition in the year 2000, where they found shards of porcelain and ancient rum and recently an enormous bar of silver. This is believed to be the true resting place of Kidd's lost treasure, or at least some of it. 
Most assuredly, though, he brought some of it here with him, and I hope some lucky Rhode Islander finds it. Without waking up the ghoul. Thank you once again for joining us today at the PG. If you would like to drop us a line to ask us a question, or to make an order for the pop-up general store, or have a ghost story, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. Don't be shy. We'd love to hear from you. But until then, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production. Pre-recorded in Patuxet.